what poetry teacher hurt Peter Weir in, in like <laughs> high school? <laughs> Hi, and welcome to episode of Cine Nation. My name is Brandon Sparks. And I'm Thomas Horton. And here on Cine Nation, we discuss film genres and the tropes and stories within them. On today's episode, we are we're doing something new. This whole month, we're doing something new. We are talking about a director for the entire month. It's something we've never done. We've always usually done a genre, and we save a director for the end of the month. But we're talking about a director that we tried talking about, as we said in the last episode, many times before. It's one of Thomas's yeah. favorite directors. We've tried to we've tried to fit him into a genre, and and I've always felt like it wasn't fair. Yeah, <laughs> whatever we've tried to fit him into, I was like, okay, well, how are we going to justify talking about like this great work yeah. if we're just talking about his his war movies? Yeah. Uh, so then that's when I was like, let's just let's just do a month. He he's not someone who's talked about often, so I think he deserves it. It's not like it's not like we're like, oh, it's Scorsese month. Like, come on, there's there's. <laughs> Plenty of think pieces out there about, about Scorsese. Scorsese. But, the, but this month, for the month of March, we are talking about Peter Weir, uh, the Australian film director who transitioned to the American film scene uh, as he grew, got acclaim in Australia. But yeah, Weir is a director that has been around, as we'll talk about today, is since the 70s, um, directing films. And the last film was directed in, I think, 2010, 2011 is what it was, with The Way Back. Mm-hmm. But has directed many films over the years, has worked with some of the biggest stars uh, of their time when they worked together. Um, so it's just a very uh, unique person to talk about because he has similar traits as many of the American directors that came up around the same time. Um, so it's going to be an interesting discussion this month. Again, we've divided into four parts. Um, each section, each episode will be about a specific amount of films. This will be kind of our biggest episode, biggest chunk of films, um, because we're talking about his early films in Australia, which was a very, not just important time for his career, but a very important time for um, the film and film or cinema at, at that point. What do you want to talk about first, Thomas? The Peter Weir or Australian New Wave Movement? Like the intro to this. Uh, yeah, I mean, we can talk about the New Wave Movement because he, he's one of those people that you know, you can pinpoint exactly who was there. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a very interesting movement to see develop because it's almost happening at the same time as the American uh, film brats. Yeah, but sm- a smaller version of it, but weirdly almost feels like it moves faster, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because Australia, as I found out in researching, this has been an interesting episode of research, is seeing how there was not really a film industry in Australia five, like five years before the new wave movement, basically like Mm -hmm. it was very, what's kind of been talked about is that once world war two happened, the Australian film industry kind of died off is what it was. There would be a few films here or there. Weirdly, as I talked about, or I read is that, many of like Australian actors just became action stars elsewhere. Mm -hmm. So people like Errol Flynn was Australian born actor who worked there first and then moved over to um, America. And then even another one with uh, George Lazenby, who's Australian friend of the podcast, George Lazenby. Yeah. He did like, he did like some of our stuff. Um, um, But he, uh, he becomes bond basically and moves over into this, larger market so it's interesting to see kind of that happening 
with their when there's no like Australian kind of industry there. And what's weird that I found out too with this is how Australia was very big in the early days of cinema. And Australia actually uh has it has the the honor of being the first country to have the first feature length narrative film shot there. Really? Which I didn't I did not know. Yeah. The first move the fir- the earliest feature length narrative film in the world was the Australian produced The Story of the Kelly Gang. Mm, I have heard of that one. And it's about um it's about bushwhackers or whatever. Yeah, the or Australian Bush- bandits. They were yeah. fairly fa- famous kind of Australian cowboys uh similar to the the Jesse James gang here in America. And it was made in 1906. Approximately only 17 minutes of the film have survived, apparently. But it is the first... I know. It's the first full-length narrative film. Also, too, it's like they were also showing short films around this time. I think even before... Or it's right after um, the Lumiere Brothers in France. So it's like uh, they showed stuff... In Australia in 1896, when the Amir brothers in France were showing it in uh, end of 1895. So weirdly, there was a big kind of film movement there for a bit in the early years of cinema. And I think what kind of happened was American cinema came in uh, with the Hollywood system and kind of took over. I think uh, I'm looking at uh, by 1923, American films dominated the Australian market with 94% of all exhibited films coming from the U.S. So, basically kind of killed it. There's a little bit there um, until World War II drops off more. But the big change was in, in 1969, I believe. Uh, they The government steps in and, and it's like, hey, we're going to start a arts fund, which many countries have, except the U.S., um, <laughs> where they fund film. And that kind of led to the beginnings of this new wave movement where the government was funding films. And also, uh, I think Peter Weir kind of says at one point when the interviews we watched of like, there might have just been like a lack of talent. And what was happening at this time of the money, uh, as the funds were coming in, there was kind of a collective of filmmakers who were rising at the same exact time. Yeah. Um, so the first, the kind of one of the earliest movies that I watched uh, to prep for this says that one of the earlier Australian New Wave films is a movie called Walkabout by Nicholas Rogue. And I want to bring this up because some of the themes that are explored in this movie continue to be explored throughout the 70s and even in many of Peter Weir's movies. Um, but Walkabout is about two European kids, uh, a girl and a boy, who essentially get stranded out in the desert after some tragic event the outback the outback they get, yeah sorry that'd be the correct way um they get they get stranded out in the outback and uh have to fend for themselves and they meet a young aboriginal boy who is out there because walkabout is essentially a tradition in the aboriginal tribes of that area that essentially like if you're a man if you're a boy you have to go out into the outback for a year or for a certain amount of time to pr- or six months to kind of prove it's your transition to manhood basically is mm-hmm. what it is. And so he is out on his walkabout when he finds these two, like two English, I believe two English kids out there and he helps them kind of, it's, it helps them kind of survive the outback, but it becomes this tale of like friendship 
but also loss of innocence. And that's kind of the key I want to bring in here is it's this idea of loss of innocence and a little bit of this essentially European descents and the ties to this land they have essentially taken from Aboriginal country or uh, uh, tribes and communities. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to be a running theme throughout some of P- Peter Weir's early films of kind of the connection between these Europeans who come in and the land they have taken. Yeah. Um, and what how, and the effects of it. I wonder if it was attached to like receiving that government money. But when you look at this new wave, like so many of these films in the Australian new wave are about Australia and being Australian. Yeah. And what does it mean to be a colonial Australian versus an Aboriginal Australian? Um, yeah, it's it's a very interesting movement. I can't think of another distinctive film movement from a country that is that much about that country. You know, like the French yeah. New Wave wasn't about being French necessarily. <laughs> and and weirdly, we've never had that as like a movement of what's what it is to be an American, and specifically never a movement of of Americans who essentially took land from the people that were there oh, before. Yeah, you'll no. see you'll see movies, but not a whole like multiple filmmakers exploring the ideas of the the uh aftermath of what happens when you take the land from some other people like walkabout but walkabout has a great um just kind of it shows in subtle ways of how like what the europeans have done to this land there's a scene where david uh, uh what's his name david uh Galapil. Gal- that's yeah, Galapil, who is um, in The Last Wave by Peter Weir as well. Um, but he plays the young Aboriginal boy. And he at one scene, he's like wrestling with the water buffalo to kill it. And then all of a sudden, these two white guys roll up in a Jeep and just start gunning down all these water buffalo as he watches and kind of just like... like uh, uh, I guess, I mean, he's depressed by it. And he's seeing kind of like nature being killed but not in a um being killed in a very brutal way like there's almost something to it of like wrestling with the buffalo and losing the fight or whatever but these guys just come up and are just killing kind of for the fun of it when mm-hmm. he's killing for food is what it is it's the difference of what was hat what like the their their kind of ideals yeah um but yeah but yeah it's a very specific this movie is very specific about what it is to be an australian uh, and and maybe that's why it transferred over a little bit into the American consciousness when it kind of hit its peak, because there's similar ideas, I guess, that are being explored that some American filmmakers have also explored. But yeah, so this movement kind of lasts from early 1970s to mid-1980s. I argue it's a little bit earlier because once uh, once the Australian films, like, because they kind of put Crocodile Dundee in this category of being part of the new wave movement, and I feel like once it, once these films hit the American mainstream, I think kind of, it's it, it begins to be like the downfall of it to me. Yeah, and so that's why this episode we're taught we're stopping at Gallipoli, uh, which is directed by Peter Weir, but he still did one more Australian movie after that. But it feels, I think, as you said, it feels more like an American film because there's more American actors in it. Yeah, well, and it also feels a little bit less like an Australian New Wave film because, like we talked about, it's it's one of the only films from that part of Weir's career that's not about what it means to be Australian. Um, yeah. 
it's and it, that's year of living dangerously is what yeah, we're talking yeah, about. Yeah, you know, it, the main character is Australian, but it's about being in a different country and what it means to be a, a visitor in another country. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of the new wave movement. And with Peter Weir, it seems like he's I think he's the most talked about person of this era, it feels like. There's other directors as well, but I don't know of another director who kind of conquered this this movement or was a big fat big face of this movement and then transitioned so effortlessly, it feels like when he goes to America. Yeah, I feel, other like, directors... I feel like Rogue still gets kind of spoken about in like art house circles. Maybe but a little he's bit also more than a British. But he's also he's also a British filmmaker. Mm-hmm. So that's the other thing is that he was a British filmmaker who came to Australia to make that movie. So it's like it's not really tied to. It's 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 like it's part of the new wave movement, but it's not one of their homegrown talents. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense, yeah. Because he goes off and does other films right after that that are bigger films and not about being Australian or being in Australia. Um, but I think in terms of the homegrown talent. There's other people like uh, uh, Philip Noyce, who I think ended up doing like some of the Jack Ryan movies is what it was uh, in the States. Uh, Bruce uh, Bersaford. I'm probably butchering some of these names, uh, but he did like Tender Mercies and Driving Miss Daisy, which is a debatable film uh, uh, nowadays. But like he did some of those. But I think Weir was able to transition to America, still make American films, but still have the same themes and sensibilities he was doing over in australia mm-hmm. that's kind of thing i want to i want to establish today uh specifically this idea of like being an outsider or being abandoned and trapped in a specific an unknown world basically because that's going to continue all the way through weir's career from right. witness to truman show and all that mm-hmm. um but we'll talk about that today or we'll start doing that today and we'll kind of continue that for the rest of the month so I don't think you said this earlier, but what has attracted you to Peter Weir all like for all these years? Well, I think it, I think there's something really beautiful in like discovering that because he's a, he's a director you've seen before. We said this last week, like you've yeah. seen a Peter Weir movie. I loved Master and Commander when I was a kid because I was obsessed with mm-hmm. like naval battles and, and, and ships and all of that. But I'd also seen, you know, I'd seen Truman Show. I'd seen dead poet society and it wasn't until i got to college and a professor showed me his movie fearless in Mm -hmm. a in an academic setting that i went like one i was like oh this is all the same person and two i started going (laughs) like there's there's something here you know and you start learning about all tour theory and you're like this is definitely all the same guy like he has his fingerprints across all of these movies and i think because they're they're very popular movies. I don't know. It, it, he made very popular films, you know, like Witness and and Truman Show, especially. But he doesn't get brought up with the, the uh, modern auteurs, and, and so I think it's and so that kind of set me down this path of of watching all this stuff, like revisiting these films and just seeing is is this guy an auteur? What does he have to say? What is his style? What are his themes? And and I do think it's all there, which is what we're going to explore this month. And the other thing going off that too, of like why he's not talked about when you look at, again, when you look at the people he's working with, he's working with, with actors specifically that end up being 
some of the biggest people in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. Like he's working with, and we'll talk about next week with witness, but with witness, he's working with Harrison Ford when Harrison Ford's at his peak. Yeah. Um, he's working with Mel Gibson right when he's breaking into the American mainstream with Mad Max. Um, he's working with Robin Williams in a dramatic role for him that he's been kind of playing with for a few years. But Ron Williams is kind of at like his highest of heights in a way at this point in time at the, at the tail end of the eighties. And then Carrie as well with Jim Carrey. He's working with Jim Carrey when Jim Carrey's on top of the world in Hollywood. And you think with, when you look at the people who have done that, like the Scorsese's with, with the De Niro when they're at, at their peak or DiCaprio at their peak or, uh, even Lucas or Spielberg with Harrison Ford with like Indiana Jones stuff, they get brought up because of that kind of partnership. But he's had similar partnerships with similar with similar with the same actors and just hasn't been carried over as well in terms of like discussion about him as a director. Um, and even like the Russell, like even Master and Commander, Russell Crowe's like on one of the hottest streaks of of any one of the past twenty years in that movie. Uh, in terms of like Oscar nominations and just like big huge films, mm -hmm. so it is kind of surprising to think that he isn't as talked about. Like when I look, like I for example, I search like Peter Weir like, like YouTube videos, and if I search Scorsese or the Coens or Spielberg, there's so many video essays about these directors. And with Weir, it's just like it's his interview he did about Gallipoli that's ten minutes long, or like it's nothing of any note. No one's really kind of sh showcasing his work as a director. So anyway, so, and, and so when we were in USC, I think one of the films that was shown to me at where we, I think we're in the same class. They showed witness was the film. Yeah. That was like one of the first movies we were assigned to watch uh, yeah. early on. And coming in as a guy who was kind of unaware as Peter Weir as a director was just like, why are we watching this movie? <laughs> but yeah, it, it, it there definitely is a voice there. And so I think it was you just, we talked about that when we were having to watch witness, when we first met, you're just like, I think he's one of the underrated auteurs. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying, I'm like, okay, who is this guy? Um, and that transitions to who is this guy? Let's talk about his early beginnings. Of right. Peter Weir. <laughs> what I found just briefly, I hadn't, I hadn't done as much research because we have a long thing of this, but Peter, Weir was born on August 21st, 1944 in Sydney, Australia, to Peggy and Lindsay Weir. Uh, Lindsay Weir was a real estate agent at the time. Uh, Peter Weir attended college, the University of Sydney, where he studied the, studied the arts and also studied law, which I think will come into play with a movie today we talk about. Um, during his time there, he met several filmmakers that would later be part of the New Wave movement. They made up a film, made up a film collector or a filmmaker collective named Ubu Films which members included Philip Noyce and Bruce Beresford. So these people were all kind of working in the same uh, circles at this point. Uh, after graduating college, Weir worked at a television station where he worked as a production assistant for a sketch comedy show named The Mavis Bampton Show. He then began, working, uh, began making several documentaries before directing his first short feature called Holmesdale a black comedy about visitors at a guest house acting out their violent private fantasies and games under the control of the house staff. Mm -hmm. I'm, this one I have not seen yet. That uh, is a, I, I just was researching that the other day. Apparently it is on the criterion Blu-ray for last, um, picnic at hanging rock. Is it? Yeah. Okay. 
I don't have my Blu-ray with me where I'm at right now, so I'll have to go find that and watch that. Um, but again, but weirdly, just off that premise, it's visitors and out, and it's these kind of outsiders is what it sounds like, which mm-hmm. again is a running theme of his, uh, of his um, career. But that leads into his first feature debut, which is also which is very different than anything else he's done. Um, and that's the cars, the eight pit, uh, the cars, the eight Paris, I almost <laughs> say cars, cars, the eight Pittsburgh, but that's a different, that's, uh, reminds me of the fish that say Pittsburgh, but the cars, the eight Paris, um, released in 1974. It's based on an idea he came up with while driving around Europe, apparently set in the fictional town of Paris, uh, in like new South Wales, in which most of the inhabitants appear to be directly or indirectly involved in profiting from the results of car accidents <laughs> on the road. We watched this like last year, I think. Yeah, when it came out, it was an early quarantine watch for me. It was uh, on Criterion Channel. Uh, what are your thoughts on this movie? Yeah, I got got a shout out Criterion Channel. They had a great Peter Weir collection for a little while, and then they kind of rolled that right into a Australian New Wave collection that they they have right now. So lots of lots of opportunities to watch these movies. Um, that movie that movie's a blast it's wild i think you and i both immediately were like how much did george miller take from this uh for mad max because it's it's about this town that that causes car accidents outside their town on purpose and then they'll kind of demo these cars and there's a kind of a sect of the town that is into like rebuilding them as as monster cars and and the the movie kind of breaks down towards the end as this like sect of like monster car people try and take over the the other people who are trying to keep it as like kind of a quiet nice town yeah Um, and it's like it's like it's like the like the young like basically the the kids and teenagers or young people of the town are the ones who are modifying these cars and it's like they're kind of attacking the older generations in the town or whatever mm mm-hmm yeah and ultimately i think you know the 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 final lesson or the final theme is you know these old people were the older generation was was manipulating all these people to make their ideal little town and and ultimately they reaped what they sowed and by teaching this younger generation that was okay to kill people you know to cause these car wrecks and and cause damage and, and hurt people they ultimately created this out of control generation that came up and and ultimately destroys the town because it's like they the, when the wrecks happen they is the, the townspeople essentially steal these people's like luggage and all their belongings and if they didn't die they like lobotomize them mm-hmm. and, and and put them in the hot it's like a we it's a weird movie yeah it's a fun movie and it's also touches on a little bit of a, another kind of subgenre or whatever of the a new wave movement is this ozploitation these like uh Aussie exploitation movies that were happening around this time, like this film and also uh, uh, Mad Max is kind of the mainstream version of it. Um, but that's also what's occurring at the same time um, with the artistic new wave movement. And Weir's weirdly a guy who worked within both of them with this film and then his later films in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, when looking at the overall career, this is a very odd debut. It is, but that's that's what I I love about him too. Is like so many of his films seem like they're not related in any way. And when you look at mm-hmm. this one, you could say like, 
oh, this is an outlier. But there's there. But then when you're watching it, there's these little hints of Truman Show popping up. You know, you've got this guy <laughs> in this town that's like a a manufactured uh, small town paradise. That's fair. And he's yeah. starting to like see the cracks as he goes. And yeah, they yeah, think the whole time I was watching, it, I was like, okay. This is Truman Show meets Mad Max, um, which neither of those <laughs> films existed yet. So it shows you how influential yeah. he was. And it's also that idea of the outsider of this guy coming into this town and being in this almost foreign land and not knowing what to do. Um, to give to if we can't convince you to watch this, apparently, uh, what I'm reading is that it was one of Kubrick's favorite films. Hmm. So there you go. It's apparently it says uh, included. Cars the Eight Paris on the list of his 93 favorite films. Interesting. So if you can go find that list. Also, the big thing, it feels like a Roger Corman movie as well. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and so it's, so when I, when I, when we watched it, I was like, I wonder if Corman tried to get this movie. And apparently there was negotiations for Corman to release this in America. Um, he, uh, they, uh, they try to negotiate, uh, uh, while it because I think this premiered at Cannes Film Festival, um, Corman they, it, it fell through, but then Corman recruited Paul Bartel to direct his movie Death Race Two Thousand. Yeah, it definitely. As, I was I was about to say it feels like Corman watched this and all he took away from it were the cool cars and he made Death Race. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Bartel had not seen the movie, but he was aware that Corman had a print of the movie. So basically, I think Corman was like, "Hey, make something with cool modified cars." Is mm-hmm. probably what he said. Because he liked this, that aspect of this film. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, fellow pioneers, a happy night and near the sand. As you by now know, the Reverend Ted Mulbray has met with a tragic shooting accident. A cruel trick of fate took him from our midst. But I feel that he is still here tonight with us in spirit the uh, the early pioneers suffered adversity and they overcame it was a tough life only the strong survived and the weak perished the future promises great things for us for our town the light is at the end of the tunnel but have you the strength to travel the short distance it remains i think most of you have i thank you and then after he makes this to move into a bigger movie to talk about he goes completely into another direction fully <laughs> Uh, with Picnic at Hanging Rock. So, so Thomas, what is Picnic at Hanging Rock about? Yeah, so this is perhaps his his most talked about, like, art house style of film, I think. You know, it's the only one that's currently on the Criterion, you know, that currently has a Criterion release out. And I, I think that's that's another thing that's so interesting to me about his career is, is a lot of people acknowledge that he started as, a, as kind of an art house auteur and then just kind of glaze over the rest of his career <laughs> yeah 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 which is kind of the opposite of so many of these american directors who started out with corman and, and yeah. you know kind of worked their way up to being 
I mean, look like yeah, like we talked about Cam with James Cameron months ago. Of just he didn't he made he made a Corman esque movie with Piranha two, and then it's like let's forget that one and talk about all of his later ones. But mm -hmm. with Weir, it's kind of like hey, let's talk about his early ones and forget everything else. Yeah, you're saying. yeah. and I and I think there's yeah, it's it's so interesting to kind of see those all combined. But uh, yeah, so Picnic at Hanging Rock was based on a very successful novel in Australia. I think it came out in like 1967. Yeah, um, by Joe Joan Lindsay is is the is the author's name. Yeah, which which kind of I think the reason the novel blew up so much is it kind of made itself out to be a true story, and it made this whole kind of yeah you know in the sixties you couldn't just Google like hey is this a true story so it, it made this kind yeah. of uproar in Australia as to whether this was real or not. But it's about a group of schoolgirls, high school like boarding school students in the nineteen hundreds who go for a picnic in the Australian outback and. Three of the students and one of the teachers goes missing while they're there. And one of the girls is recovered alive, but the rest of them are never found. Their bodies are never found. And it's just kind of about the, the fallout within the school and within this little town nearby of like what happens when these perfect little boarding school girls go missing. Yeah. And there's no answer. It's kind of the thing. I mean, mm -hmm. spoiler alert. It tells you kind of at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> they disappear without they disappear without a trace it's like going to see romeo and juliet and saying they're gonna die mm -hmm. but here's how it, here's how it happened like here's how it leads to that and with picnic it's very much like it's about the um like so the aftermath of how, like how 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 do we react to the unexplained mm -hmm. essentially um and and maybe we get into this now but that's kind of why you love another television show that takes that same kind of <laughs> yeah you know it, same it, it, approach <laughs> it all came to it. i was texting you the other night when i was watching our next one the last wave and and i was like oh my gosh this this movie is the third season of the leftovers which is a movie mm -hmm. which is a tv series i adore and then you and i both start googling and we we're like oh wow damon lindelof the showrunner for the leftovers has acknowledged both picnic hanging rock and uh, the last wave is being huge influences on the show. And I was like, this makes so much sense. I love Peter Weir. I love the leftovers, but yeah, it's, it's, it's about this kind of embrace of the, of the unknown and the unexplained. And, and it it's, I, I think there's definitely something in there about, I mean, it's definitely about colonialism and, and about what happens when these prim and proper European colonialists come up against the, the wilderness and the, it's 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 almost like walkabout but embracing a little bit more of the mysticism of yeah this yeah. this untamed land and and you know the the tribal beliefs that came before these colonialists came and so yeah it's it's about this kind of loss of innocence but also this question of like are these people ready to be out here are they ready for the outback yeah, are they yeah. ready for everything that australia entails yeah because they're just out here having tea Mm -hmm. like and and the and the noon and the afternoon light or whatever um and very it's a very prim and proper all these kind of like and and i don't know if again it's this are they australian or are they european type thing that's the kind of thing um but yeah it's a very i just talk about kind of the mysticism of it what's weird about this one and then also with last wave is that they feel almost supernatural but aren't supernatural like it, it's if that makes sense like it's mm -hmm. really like it's walking this fine line of we're not jumping into aliens or whatever and ghosts and stuff, but 
there's always that like foreboding or kind of like uneasiness that's present without Picnic and Hanging Rock. Yeah. From the music to the way it's shot. Um, it's just a very, it's beautiful stuff, but there's always this unease that's like lying beneath the surface. Yeah. I saw when I was looking around after watching the last wave the other day, I, I saw somebody who was just like, what if Peter Weir had gone into horror after doing Picnic yeah. and Hanging Rock in the last wave? Cause they both have this underlying, like supernatural suspense to them but i wouldn't i wouldn't describe either of them as being horror in any way but but it's definitely there yeah i think some someone called like picnic at hanging rock kind of this uh it's uh australian gothic or whatever of like uh, a very much like this not gothic romance but kind of in that line of yeah i mean it's it's kind of you know what what we saw del toro run up against with when he did uh crimson Crimson peak Peak was Everyone yeah. thought it was going to be a horror, and he was like, "Nope, it's been a been a gothic the whole time. That was always my intention." Yeah, and I was watching one of the uh, kind of the, the behind the scenes thing online of that Criterion has of uh, picking Hanging Rock. It's like a thirty minute interview with Weir about it, and he one he talked about a technique he does in the movie that I I found kind of ingenious. He talked about how he uses slow mo shots, but he doesn't want you to realize they're slow mo shots. Like, so he'll shoot like close ups and he he basically tell the actors don't blink. Mm-hmm. So when they move, it's like their movements are very slow, but they're very small movements. So you're not clocking it as slow motion, but you're clocking it as like uneasiness. Mm-hmm. I think the one he's the one kind of uh, shot that is the most like apparent that slow mo is when I think Miranda is jumping from stone to stone. Yeah. Uh, across the like little creek or whatever right there. He goes, but everything, and he showed kind of spots where it's like, and even when watching it back today, you kind of see these like slow movements, but that seems natural, but also unnatural. I don't know. It's hard to explain. It's, it's like a dream, which is yeah. something that when I was, re- I haven't read the book, but I read a couple of reviews for the book and they all said that the, the book is very dreamlike. So you've got to imagine if you're, you know, the author and, and you see Weir's adaptation of it you got to be happy because I, I can't think of a, a better way to describe what he does with this film than than to be like dreamlight you know it's got kind of soft focus throughout and the way the music just kind of flows the whole thing and 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 like you said the movement itself is very slow and, and fluid it does feel like you're you're in a dream yeah yeah he used uh because it's shot by russell boyd who became one of the big Australian DPs that also transitioned to America as well after this. Um, but they put like veils and like fabrics over the lenses to get that kind of soft dreamlike image essentially. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's a, it's a beautiful film in terms of just the way it's shot. Um, and I know when reading Roger Ebert's review of it, he's like, it has the two things that all the Australian new wave movies have beautiful cinematography and uh de- the relationship of like Europeans dealing with this like ancient land they have now taken mm-hmm. essentially um but picnic at hang rock is probably in terms of visuals is probably his most influential film mm-hmm. i would say um i think because of people like sofia coppola yeah, because like I'm mean, jumping ahead a little bit, but like Sofia Coppola, like 
I know has said, or you can, or just by watching your films, you can tell with Virgin Suicide specifically, and then also Marie Antoinette, but Virgin Suicide just feels like I want to take the look of a little bit of the look of picnic and hanging rock of these like young girls and this all white kind of, uh, uh, wardrobe. And these are my main characters. I'm going to follow in this like dreamlike scenario. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what Virgin Suicides plays like to me. Um, but it's, I think we're, I think that it's just, it's again, we're talking about how all these films are different. Picnic at Hanging Rock has similar themes to all those other films, but in terms of visual style and the way it's done, it just feels completely different than mostly anything else he later did. I got a, I, I have a little, uh, trivia fact from Picnic yes. at Hanging Rock for you, Brandon. Yeah. You're talking about Peter Weir studying law and how that was going to come back in later. The mm-hmm. actress who played Irma, the one who survives, mm-hmm. became an entertainment lawyer and is still working in Hollywood to this day and has worked on many films, including All the Real Girls. Wow. Okay. I'm looking at her stuff right now. Yeah. She's done a lot of stuff. Oh, that's crazy. Did she only act in this movie? Yeah. And then she was just like, I want to be a lawyer, but I'm going to keep doing movies, I guess. Okay. And 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 in America. Is did you, did you yeah. also well, enjoy the young Jackie Weaver? In, in Jackie this? Weaver. Yeah, Jackie Weaver pops up in this. And that's another thing, too. It's, it's crazy when looking at this new wave movement and seeing the actors and actresses and, and writers and directors who got started in it, who you don't like. Like another one, Sam Neill, mm-hmm. who's still going strong with uh, all the recent movies he's done. And he was part of this new wave movement with movies like Breaker Morant. So yeah, it's like it's interesting to see that the kind of people that still, decades later, are still very prominent in the Hollywood system. Mm-hmm. Um, I also read, and we in terms of like the making of the movie, Pierre, we were talking about how they because it's based on a book, as you said, they optioned the book, and he said that was a very uh, unknown. Uh, tactic in Australian cinema at that time. He goes, because everyone wrote their own stuff. You didn't option books. That was kind of an American... Yeah, it was like the next like, step in making it, yeah. making that industry legit. Yeah, so that was kind of the American-European concept. Uh, and so it was weird for they it would option it. Um, and then when it was released, uh, I want to talk about this, is that the kind of... It was critically re- well-received, but people hated... Some people hated that you don't find out what like what happened to these girls. Mm-hmm. Like, and the movie's not about that. The movie's about the kind of aftermath of the town, like you talked about. But they're like, it's a mystery with no solution. He's or Weir said that that he's uh, he was in a theater one time, and it was a distributor who threw his coffee cup at the screen and said, "This has wasted two hours of my life," <laughs> and and many people felt that way. Uh, at the time so it's funny to think now i think you just kind of accept it for what it is but at that point like they wanted and specifically with american audiences i feel they wanted a solution to the to this it's a mystery you need i want to know who who did this to them was it aliens was it these dudes who were off like kind of uh hanging out at the rock i think i read that weir went later on he recut it and cut out seven minutes of it to take away like possible solutions, if that makes sense. <laughs> well, that's that's also why you know I'm, I I I love I think this movie pulls it off well. But um, a few years ago, Amazon did a miniseries based on the book. Yeah, and yeah, 
I was always so hesitant to watch it because I was like, do I want to devote six or eight episodes to this? I, mm-hmm. I already know that I'm not going to know what happened unless they decide to radically distance themselves oh, from the book and give a solution. But uh, I, I think it's great. It's a perfect little one hour, 45 minute runtime. Yeah. But I don't know <laughs> if I want to spend eight episodes seeing the fallout of these girls disappearing. Well, ma'am, ma'am, the strength of it is this. Three of your young ladies and, uh, and Miss McCraw are m- missing on the rock. What happened? Well, now, Mrs. Appleyard, uh, that's just the trouble. Nobody knows what happened. So he does picnic a hanging rock, and that's kind of the big breakout. I believe it was the first um, Australian film, or one of the first, that broke over into America, is what it was. So this is the kind of the beginning of the Australian films being shown in America. So I think, like, Ebert's review came out in, like, 79, I believe, which... He, which the movie came out in Australia in 75. So it's like four years later. Mm-hmm. Um, so it becomes a commercial and critical success and kind of brings attention to Australian new wave movement. So after Picnic and Hanging Rock, he does The Last Wave, which comes out in 1977. Was released in America as Black Rain, apparently. Oh, interesting. Um, but it's about a, a lawyer in Sydney... Um, whose life is disrupted after he takes on a murder case and discovers he has a strange mystical connection with this small group of Aboriginal people that are being accused of this murder. Um, and it's I think Weir said he 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 liked the idea of like a uh was it a pragmatic a, a person with the pragmatic approach who experiences a premonition. So this guy, so so played by Richard Chamberlain, uh, the lawyer, he starts having dreams of like things to come, uh, and it's kind of this, like I kind of compare it to Take Shelter in a way, a little mm-hmm. bit the the um, Jeff Nichols movie with Michael Shannon, because it's this guy who's having premonitions that something is occurring, and it could be, and there's always this kind of again foreboding and and kind of foreshadowing of this like disaster happening, um, and possibly this and you and dealing with water in some way um so had you seen this movie before i had not we, this was one of two uh peter weir films i had not seen going into this series okay so what did you think of it yeah i thought it was i thought it was really interesting it's it's crazy how different it is stylistically from picture hanging yeah. or from picnic at hanging rock especially to be his follow-up to it and and i watched an interview with him where he said that was on purpose uh you know, Picnic at Hanging Rock is very golden and, and like you said, slow and it's period to period piece. And this one is modern and you're in the city and everything is blue because it's raining all the time. And but still they come back to like almost the very same themes. Yeah, no, it does. <laughs> Which is like these, the, the, the European heritage and the colonializers in uh, in Australia kind of not not being able to really fathom the the supernatural of this place that they've come to and this this yeah. one's just dealing with it 
decades later and and this idea that like okay now we're here we've built sydney and, yeah. and you know these people keep telling him he keeps saying like i think something supernatural is going on here i think we're dealing with like an aboriginal tribe and kind of the tribal beliefs and everyone's like that ah, that's that's dead in the city like those yeah the, the aboriginal people who live in the city don't hold on to those beliefs anymore and so everyone thinks that like we've built this city we've kind of rid this area of the mysticism and richard chamberlain yeah. comes to find that you know <laughs> and poltergeist you moved you moved the <laughs> headstones but you didn't move the bodies that's kind of yeah weirdly i thought about that a little bit when watch when rewatching it last night of like it has weird kind of poltergeist ideas of like there's still something beneath the surface mm-hmm. of sydney no matter how many years of building it up there's still something in the roots of the area that you can't just wash away you can only or build over it's always going to be there yeah going out the production design the look of it i heard in his interview the guy who did the production design for it is the only film he ever production design. Yeah. It was so weird. His name's Goran Worf. And I think he said he was like a glass sculpturist or something, like some artist. And he's like, yeah, it's the only film he ever did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a... I watched a year ago when we were prepping for this initial episode. And then I rewatched it after learning more about the Australian new wave movement and kind of the ideas that were running through it. And I enjoyed it more the second time Mm. this time because I latched on more to the relationship between these Europeans uh, who have become, who have become Australians and their relationship with the land they have taken. Like there was though, I told you this in the opening, but there's that one scene when the two uh, Aboriginal people are coming to have dinner at uh, Richard Chamberlain's house. Mm. And his wife goes, I'm a fourth generation Australian. I've never met an Aboriginal person. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, that's like, that's kind of the, like the, I, like the criticism we're going with is mm-hmm. that they consider themselves, oh, I'm a fourth generation Australian, but I know nothing about this country mm-hmm. at the end of the day of where, where this country came from and who, whose it was before. It's just like, Oh, that's just kind of someone I've heard about. I've never met a person like that before. Um, and so there's an interesting, it doesn't delve into like racism or talking about racism the way like American films might, but there's definitely that hint of that, of this divide between these groups of people in Australia. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think I said, I think it's a very, in terms of like, it's not a disaster movie, but it's a very interesting kind of take on the disaster movie, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right in that Take Shelter is a is a great kind of parallel to draw. It's a very similar. I, I'd be surprised if Nichols hadn't seen this. And there's also some some great Aboriginal performers in this. There's a the an interview with with Weir where he talks about he you know he said I I really want tribal aboriginals to come be in this because they'll understand you know what these these characters believe and especially Mm -hmm. you know it's all about this lawyer trying to help get these people off and they're saying no our tribal law is more important than any one person and that becomes kind of a running theme throughout and so there's another great performance from uh david gallopole here and then an, another actor, I can't remember his name now, but they, but Peter Weir talks about he was a 
uh, magistrate in a tribe yeah. in in North Australia, and they they brought him down to do this. And and Weir yeah. it's Weir's got a, a great interview where he's like, we didn't always see eye to eye. I would kind of give him these lines, and I never knew what he was going <laughs> to do with them. And he said, it's kind of hard for me to watch this movie now because of that. But like, I respect the experience I had with him, and I respect him for doing this movie but from a directing standpoint it was a challenge for sure yeah he said he all he says every time i watch it i just see myself like behind the camera trying to get him to say the lines <laughs> because he said like he's talked about like he was trying to get like the aboriginal people like real as you just said uh, to be in the roles and because of that he was talking about how like acting wasn't really a part of their society. Mm-hmm. So it was hard to kind of like make that work. But you see like that actor, he plays Charlie as the character, kind of, kind of the spiritual leader for that group. But he said like he was able to get all the other Aboriginal people that were part of in the movie are because he brought them in. Cause then he said so he knew many of the Aboriginal people that could possibly do it. Um, and he doesn't have many lines in the movie, but there he's very effective in the scenes he has. And then also going back to your leftovers connection, uh, is that David, uh, Gap- uh is in the leftover season three. Mm-hmm. I don't know what care. I haven't, I haven't seen season two or season three of leftovers. So I'll admit those, that. Those now. are the best seasons. I'm getting there. This episode's making me finish the leftovers. Yeah, very, uh, it's, it's, it's so funny now that the connection has been made between Weir and those seasons. I was like, I absolutely see it now. And I see why I love both of them so much, but I, I never would have made the connection. My favorite, my favorite of, of his performances, I grew up loving Crocodile Dundee. I absolutely yeah. love those films. And he plays kind of Mick's best friend in those yeah. movies. And um, Neville. Mm-hmm. Neville. Uh, yeah, he did it. And he also won a lot of like the kind of the Australian equivalent of the Oscars. He won uh, two best actor awards. Uh, for there one for the movie called the tracker and one for a movie called charlie's country i think he wrote charlie's country he did he's a co-writer for it you're right yeah what are dreams dream like seeing hearing talking i'll show you a dream Dream is a shadow. Of something real. But yeah, the last wave is kind of I don't know, it's 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 still not top five weird for me. No. <laughs> but it's but it's a very unique film yeah. to look at. And I think it's a great milestone within the Australian New Wave movement, especially to make a a modern film because so many of the movies up until that point had to deal with kind of Australia. Like we talked about, they were, they were all kind of dealing with what it meant to be Australian. And I think a lot of the writer directors took that as an opportunity to kind of look backwards. And this is one that feels very contemporary and very modern. And it's, um, and yeah, I said, it's, it's everything else been been about the outback and this is about kind of the cityscape. And also too, uh, we were talked about because he's from Sydney is that there's a kind of a it's it's almost like a like analyzing his own upbringing in a weird way 
because he talks about how like the church they're at at one point when like because i think uh richard chamberlain's father is like a a vicar at one of the the churches there and he talks about how that's the church he grew up at like as a kid and like all the areas they go to are places he went to like as a child or as a teenager or whatever so it's very much like a, a hometown movie in a weird way and he's analyzing w- what his hometown actually is mm-hmm. um which is kind of i mean it's interesting to look at in that context um again i just don't see americans making films like that if that may, like, <laughs> if t- talking about its relationship to uh natives native americans and the kind of the land it's just it's very it's few and far between yeah um but the last wave comes out as i said it was released in america under the title black rain um it wasn't that big of a hit it seems like it apparently it was released by united artists uh in america and i think even maybe in australia it made about less than a million dollars at the box office so not a huge hit but again all these movies that he's making because we haven't really talked about this are getting nominations at the australian equivalent of the academy awards Mm -hmm. again there's not as much going on in terms of movies compared to america but he's still like for last wave there was best sound nomination best score also i want to talk about this too and i'll bring it up in gallipoli as well the scores he has for his films are so unique Mm -hmm. like there's something about him even to like even we'll talk about with green card with hans zimmer one of your favorite hans zimmer scores i know (laughs) where there's just something it feel it feels almost ahead of its time in a way the scores of some of these films Mm -hmm. like when watching last wave and even gallipoli where i was like i could see i could hear this score being played in a movie nowadays and no one would say it sounds dated yeah that makes sense because some scores of this era can feel dated and of the time and these don't these kind of have a very kind of um freshness to them so he does the last wave We'll briefly touch on this movie, but he does a movie, a tele, a television movie called The Plumber, <laughs> which I know is Thomas's favorite of Peter Weir's films. Yeah, I think this might be my least favorite. Not, not, <laughs> not that it's any bad, but like just a lot of the things I love about his work is kind of missing here, especially the scale. Like all yeah, of his movies, yeah. even going back to Cars at Eight Paris, that you can tell he had budgetary restrictions, still feel huge, and maybe that's yeah just you know the added bonus of shooting in the outback but uh this entire movie is set in like one apartment and so it's uh it's definitely different for him as far as a filmmaking challenge but it's about a a woman who is uh she's a professor she's working from home and a plumber comes in to fix her bathroom and proceeds to drive her insane whether or not he's yeah. doing it on purpose it's one of those things where he is kind of rude like creepy rude to her but always passes it off as nice and whenever she tries to tell someone else about it they're like oh i know that plumber he's great and and it <laughs> kind of drives her crazy and he starts dismantling the bathroom and he's like i'm gonna be here forever working on this yeah. toilet uh and it's a it's a strange little like black comedy <laughs> paranoia thriller i guess yeah yeah yeah. but it it was a television movie so again that's the other thing yeah you bring up a good point and i've always kind of felt about weird films that there is a there is an epicness to them there's a lot like there's a huge it's on a huge scale even the movies like you said cars eight pairs even picking a hanging rock picking a hanging rock 
has a big scale to it, but it's not a big film, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Last Wave, very similar thing. It feels huge, but it's not really a big film. I think that's a nice transition to, I think, his first really big film, yes. and that's Gallipoli. Yeah. Um, and Gallipoli is about these two young men who are kind of runners in Australia, and they decide to sign up for World War One to fight for Australia, who are fighting for the Allies, specifically fighting for the British, essentially. And they're going to be sent over to Gallipoli. Uh I didn't realize how much of a because I I'd never seen this movie before watch before this episode, um, and I didn't realize how much of like anti-war movie it kind of is, mm. and in both its approach and its sentiment, like I feel like there's not a battle scene to last 15, 20 minutes of the movie. Yeah, it's all leading up to like a war. Well, I think I think that's what's so interesting about this movie as a war movie is there's so many war movies that if you were to ask the person behind it, the writer director, they would say this is about the loss of innocence. Yeah. yeah. But this movie more than any other war movie I can think of puts so much effort on showing you that innocence, especially on showing you it spends so much time on these characters showing you that they have absolutely no idea what they're in for. Nope. And, and they think it's just a good, you know, from Mel Gibson's character, he just thinks it's a good adventure. He's somebody who's out to have a good time. His buddies are all going. He's going to go too. Uh, yeah. The other character, Archie, has these delusions of grandeur. You know, it's it's my duty as a as a patriot and as an Australian, and we're going to go change the mm-hmm. world and we're going to do something big. And and it spends so much of the movie building up their happiness and their joy and their innocence and their friendship to then yeah. in the last half hour just kind of tear you apart. <laughs> Yeah, it does. It, I, I cried. Um, but it's yeah, it's it's a we it's a it's a a war movie about friendship. Like as you said, it's the and this is a, it is very much like you see these two guys become friends. Yeah, I I um I rewatched it this past week and I watched it over two nights and I I was like I'm gonna stop it at the halfway point tonight and go to bed and and the exact halfway point of the movie is them arriving to the war. The the, yeah. enti- the first half of the movie is about them becoming friends and they have a little misadventure where they end up stranded in the outback and yeah uh, but yeah it's, it's you're not even until the halfway point that they even get to um well get Africa to Cairo, which right? then yeah, leads yeah. to them get, they get to Egypt in the at the halfway point and then it, and it's another halfway from there before they're actually at the front yeah well it's this moment where like they the halfway point is kind of like where they separate mm-hmm. because essentially a little bit of a spoiler, but it's kind of the halfway part of the movie is that they, they end up one gets in uh, to the section they're going for. And the other one doesn't. Um, and they end up meeting up in Cairo when they're kind of having a, a mock battle or whatever. And mm-hmm. they're just like, Hey, it's you like, what's up? Um, and again, it, it, it brings about that innocence again, when you're seeing them together in Cairo, it's 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 interesting because you always see romance movies and relationship movies and seeing how like a relationship progresses, but you don't see a lot of friendship movies, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. of how a friendship progresses. And this one handles it incredibly well. And 
what I love too about again with the war stuff when they actually go to kind of they're fighting in Gallipoli outside of Ottoman Empire, which is now Turkey, and there's these great scenes of he does so much to not put them in battle, if that makes mm-hmm. sense. Like they're delivering water to people or delivering messages. But one of my favorite scenes of how he showcases the war is Gibson or Frank and Archie. They're not fighting, but they know that a battle is about to commence and they're sitting in the cemetery. Mm-hmm. And Archie asked Frank, Frank played by Gibson that he goes, what time do they start? And Gibson goes, now and right when he says that you just hear gunshots gunshots going off and like way in the in the in the distance in the background we don't go to it but it's this like ominous like presence of like them sitting in a cemetery their makeshift cemetery in gallipoli as this battle's going on Mm -hmm. not too far away from them yeah i think i think one of the wildest sequences in this movie that just shows the combination of like the just how i i think how blind these boys were to what was coming to them uh mm-hmm. you know just this is the the sequence where they're, they've arrived at the front and um they're taking bets because the 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 ocean they're on the beach and the ocean is getting shelled by enemy artillery and so they're doing this game where they're all throwing money into a hat and they go out into the ocean and swim underwater and see who gets hit with an artillery shell and if you survive, you get the the pot <laughs> and they're just all having a blast. Like it's presented like yeah, this like, really hey! fun little little swimming game that they do. And it's like these guys are under active fire from the enemy. Yeah, it's like going out to the pond in the summer, you know, and just it's it's I mean, it's an interesting kind of like said, lost fence. It's kind of coming of age tale in a weird way. Uh, all these two characters. But I want to also bring about again, we've talked about what it is to be an Australian and when we start off the movie, you have you have Archie who's this like, oh, it's my duty to go and serve my country, and that's what we should do as like Australians of go serve our country in World War Two and World War One. And Gibson's character is more like, but who are we fighting for? Are we fighting for us? Or are we fighting for the British? Mm-hmm. And like, and and are we really like, are they just going to sit off and drink tea as we go fight for them, or? are we actually like brothers in arms? Yeah. I mean, and it's, it's you, a similar argument that was being had in America for both of the yeah. world wars was, you know, we're an Island. This is a European war. We're in an Island over here. They yeah. can't really get to us. You know, who are we really fighting for here? And, and Australia yeah. obviously has a, a much more recent uh, relationship as far as being colonized by the British. So they were a little yeah. bit more, uh, obliged to not help and so that's 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 brought up over and over again it's like who are we dying for are we actually dying for our country or are we dying for this country that used to own us yeah and like because i think frank i think it's like frank's dad talks about how like oh you like he says how his mom was killed by british people or whatever like when they're in ireland or something because mm-hmm. i don't know if frank's like if they're like yeah they're they're irish he's an irish descent is what it is and so because he's an Irish Im- immigrant, that's even another thing of like Irish versus the British. And apparently British people killed his mother. So it's like, I'm going to go fight for the people that essentially broke my family apart. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's and, and, and the thing is, he's very much against it the entire time. But it's that friendship with Archie and seeing his kind of like passion for it that I think convinces him to do it mm-hmm. and his friends as well. Yeah. Um. So I, it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic there. And then another thing I want to bring up too, which we talked about the large scale of this movie, 
this is when you really see we're he's allowed to let loose in terms of the scale. Yeah. Like the huge it's it's I said it reminded me a little bit of of like I wonder if Spielberg saw this movie for Raiders, but I thought I I, I forgot that they were released the same year. But it then just kind of reiterated my thought that oh they both just watched a lot of David Lean movies and yeah. Lawrence Varavia mm-hmm. are like we're gonna do that for this movie because um, he had these these beautiful wide shots of like the the outback but then also also like Cairo and the desert and then even Gallipoli. Um, but then he also has these moving master shots where every the blocking is kind of amazing. I said one of my favorite scenes that I said is when um you see kind of Gibson's soldier or Gibson's friends uh, who were kind of signing up for the uh, military. And Gibson's kind of said the entire time, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to sign up and be on the the front line or whatever. Um, and then it's you're seeing all the people and then it gets to the end of the line and Gibson stands straight up in the frame. Mm-hmm. And it's just great reveal, this character reveal. And he does it a lot in this movie of these character reveals by using the camera and them stepping into frame, usually from like the bottom of frame because it has a bigger impact than coming from the side. Um, and it's just masterful. That's It's really where you get to see his like masterful take or his masterful uh, skill of blocking for camera. Yeah, and I think um, this is definitely the movie when people in America, even if you saw Picnic of Cane Rock, you saw this one and you yeah. said, oh, this guy is of interest to us. He can handle yeah. big scale stuff. Big movies. Because that leads to my next thing is that this was apparently the biggest, the biggest, the biggest budgeted film in Australia ever when it came out. Uh, and weirdly, as we, as I'm texting you about it, weirdly, the only film Rupert Murdoch ever produced. Yeah, I saw that at the opening credits. <laughs> yeah, it's like, and, and, see, and apparently, because we were saying it was, it, the, him and his like friend starred the company to produce films, and this is the only one they did mm-hmm. was Gallipoli. And I think Murdoch gets a like executive producer credit, uncredited uh, credit for it. But it was essentially that they put the money. And I think it was that Murdoch's father was a journalist and covered was actually there in Gallipoli when some of this stuff happened. And when he saw it, he became a very like against the war and against Australia's participation in the war. Interesting. Yeah, I know. Right. And, and it sounds like Murdoch wanted to make the movie to honor like that kind of idea yeah it's it's interesting i was reading on letterbox um a lot of reviews for this movie would be people like i'm australian and like we always talk about gallipoli we have they have anzac day which is um kind of their memorial day in australia for australian and new zealand armed forces and he was i I read one or two reviews that were like i went into this movie thinking that like obviously we talk about gallipoli so much it must have been a huge victory for us and uh, I guess I was really bad in history class. <laughs> and may, I rated it a four and a half out of five on Letterboxd. Man, that was too high, but I it, it got me emotionally. And I just think Weir's direction is is incredible. And I think, and and we'll we'll come back to this next week. And and I mean, obviously, this is someone that you can't talk about without addressing his controversy. But yeah, when you see a young Mel Gibson in this movie, you just go, "Oh my god, this is just pure." charisma talent i don't know what it is but it's there he's he's got it yeah it's so that's the big thing is that this comes out the same year as mad max fury road i'm not sorry, <laughs> different one mad max road warrior my apologies mad max road warrior which is the sequel to mad max and so in 81 
you see the uh, range of Mel Gibson, uh, of this action star, but then also this very dramatic actor that ha- that can give you more than just thrills, essentially. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's like he's a star, and 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 compared to the guy who who's playing against Mark Lee, who's also good in this movie. It's just he. Anytime Gibson's on screen, it kind of he captures the camera. Well, and there's a weird structure to the film, and that it, it kind yeah. of like switches yes. from Archie's movie to Frank's movie like halfway through. It's weird because like you're you're following Archie for the, a lot of the beginning and seeing like a brief glimpse of Gibson, and they have their their race uh, at the beginning because they're both runners. Uh, and then they become friends afterwards. And so it's almost like it, it average, it balances out in a way because Archie has so much of the beginning time. And then Frank has the middle section mm-hmm. and like, we never go see Archie when they're separated. It's just staying on Frank is yeah. what it is. Where are you headed? Perth. Oh, I nearly went there once. Uh, thought I would just leave one big city before I die. You're looking for work? No, I'm after the war. What war? The war against Germany. I knew a German once. How did it start? Don't start him. Don't know exactly, but it was the Germans' fault. The Australians fighting already. <laughs> In Turkey. Turkey? Why is that? Ask him. Because Turkey's a German ally. Ah, oh, well, you learn something every day. Jim, can't see what it's got to do with us. We don't stop them there, they can end up here. And uh, welcome to it. <laughs> yeah, the movie comes out in 1981, and I think this is where it's released by Paramount in the US. Um, very well beloved. There is uh, kind of critiques of the uh, accuracy, historical accuracy of the movie. Hmm. Um, but basically, it, it dominates at the Australian, uh, at the AACTA Awards, Australian Academy of Cinema and Television Arts Awards, with winning Best Sound, Best Editing, Best Cinematography. Bill Hunter, who plays one of their head people, wins Best Supporting Actor. Gibson wins Best Actor, Best Screenplay, Best Direction, Best Film. So it's it's big mm-hmm. in Australia. And I said that's where it's like, oh... Maybe we should, look, and it gets also nominated for best foreign language with the Golden Globes because they're they matter so much. Um, topical. Um, but this is the one where it feels like peak uh, pure Australian movie, mm-hmm. and then we get into a little bit more of the Americanized version of it with the Year of Living Dangerously. Yeah. So yeah, so it's starting to become mainstream, and this period again. Would you say? in terms of looking at kind of what cinema became later and kind of the people that uh, were influenced by it, do you think this is the most like influential period of Weir's career? If that makes sense. I mean, I I think so. I think, like I said, I think you can point to picnic and hang rock as being his biggest film within the kind of art world. And so I definitely think, I I think he himself, you know, and, 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 he's one of those directors that's really interesting because a lot of these people, you can kind of watch them build their style over time and over years. And, and I think he hit on it like between picnic at hanging rock 
and Gallipoli, you can go back and kind of see the textbook for his two styles of films moving forward. His his kind of smaller dramas. There is so much of Dead Poet Society inside Picnic at Hanging Rock. And you you wouldn't necessarily think of those two together where you go back and watch it and you're like, oh my God, it's all here. And and with Gallipoli, I think a lot of his larger scale style is, is there as well. So I definitely think if not only for his career, then yeah, I think for his, as far as his like stamp on, on cinema, I do think it's wild how influential he was early on. I mean, you can even argue, because I agree with you on the Picnic Hanging Rock and Dead Poet Society, you can even kind of argue that with Gallipoli. Because it's about these two, essentially two young boys who become friends. And there's, there and Dead Poets, you kind of have, it's not as big of a plot, but you have that friendship between uh, Ethan Hawke and Robert Sean Leonard, mm-hmm. who are becoming cl- and seeing them develop as friends. And all the all the guys in the group develop as friends within that year. Um, and then again, Gallipoli kind of deals with this idea of the outsider mm-hmm. in a way of the, again, it's the, why are we here? And we're going to this foreign land and we're kind of trapped in this foreign land. Um, and all those things are going to be brought back up, uh, in these later films. Um, and again, also in the loss of innocence, I think that's a big thing that you'll say about dead poet society, um, is the growing up aspect of it. But yeah, I think that's something you and I both, when we last year, when they added a bunch of weird stuff to Criterion and you and I both started diving even deeper in it with the idea that we'd be doing an episode where we would be reading him as an author. I think you and I both kind of independently came away with like something about being an outsider, being out of place, feeling like you don't belong, fits in lit- almost literally in every movie that he's ever made. And, and every it's kind movie. of wild, yeah. especially for someone who isn't writing all of his movies he has a lot of story by credits uh but he doesn't write a lot of his scripts um to have that being so recurring is is very rare we clocked it and then we saw that roger ebert also clocked it um because he said let's see yeah so it says reflecting on weir's body of work Roger was, this is like a, kind of a review of all of his films after he passed away. Roger was struck by the recurring theme of outsiders who find themselves in a place where they are unwelcome. And it says somewhere at the very bottom of Weir's imagination must lurk the conviction that you'll be all right if you stay at home. But if you wander into other lands, you may find that you have disappeared. Mm. Yeah. Very prominent. I mean, even we'll dive into it with dead poets society in a very kind of more, it's a, in a different environment but they are kind of all outsiders in the 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 boarding school they're in yeah you know it's funny i i had on picnic at hanging rock and my girlfriend was in the room today and there's a scene when the the headmistress like keeps one girl back from going to the picnic yeah and, and takes her to this classroom and it's like recite this poetry for me and the student is like oh what about my own poetry i wrote she's like no you read out of this book and you'll oh, recite yeah. this poetry back and i was like man what poetry teacher hurt Peter Weir in, in like <laughs> high school? <laughs> poetry is about the beauty. It's not about the, 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 the exact rhythm or whatever of it. Uh, the scale. I will go to the dead poet side, but like this, the, okay, where is it range on this scale mm-hmm. here against here? Well, I gave it a five. It's... Cause I like the beat, but I can't dance to it. What Robin says, um but yeah it's again and we're gonna see it more and then we'll, we'll kind of preview of next week it's like we're gonna see it more now from 
how him as an Australian director takes that and morphs it into an Americanized version of an outsider. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into that, I think, with Witness specifically. So, yeah, I would think, as we talked about with Picnic Hanging Rock, this feels like, and also because of Linda Loft's uh, uh, praise for Last Wave and, and Picnic, it definitely feels like this might be the more on the surface, the more influential, the most influential period, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. the one that everyone looks back at. Um, but we'll dive again, we'll dive more into how that continues throughout his career in the later weeks. Yeah. Cause it, it should be noted, not that criterion is the end all be all of success, but his, they're not, he, he does technically have two films in the collection. There was a DVD release of the last wave that has not been updated to Blu-ray, but that's that's still it shows you how and i think that's what you and i are kind of setting out to correct here is yeah that 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 australian period of his career does seem to be the only period that is currently okay to discuss in like a critical academic setting yeah and i think we're here to show that that he continued that quality of work and he continued those themes and that thought that he was touching on there throughout the rest of his career yeah and if you and maybe and you might be thinking, I've heard the name Peter Weir of late somewhere online. That's because <laughs> Russell Crowe went after somebody mm-hmm. on Twitter uh, because someone commented about how it was Master a journalist Commander, for like the New York Times or something like he was for a really? major publication. It yeah. was someone. Yeah. And he said that Master and Commander was slow. So if you ever need to ju- take a good nap, put on Master and Commander and then the first 20 minutes will put you to sleep. Yeah. The guy put uh Lots of folks complaining about lack of sleep during the pandemic. May I recommend Master and Commander? Starring the usually captivating attention-grabbing Russell Crowe. I've never made it past the 10-minute mark. You're welcome, and thanks, Russell. What a dick. <laughs> uh, and then and then Crowe responds, That's the problem with kids these days. No focus. Peter Weir's, films, or Peter Weir's film is brilliant. An exciting, detail-oriented, epic tale of fidelity to empire and service regardless of the cost incredible cemetery by russell boyd again dp of picnic and hanging rock and last wave and a majestic soundtrack again this damn score i'm te- everything we've talked about is in this damn tweet um definitely an adults movie yeah and then josh gatter responded a perfect movie so there you go yeah i mean come on man whoever you are that tweeted that original tweet i had that movie on vhs when i was like 12 i loved it <laughs> if i can yeah. watch it you can't you can too. Uh, one of the directors of Spider-Man and the Spider-Verse, Peter Ramsey, also weighed in. Peter Weir is a god. That movie's amazing, and you're amazing in it. Thank you. Yep. little preview. That's what we're here to prove. Um, is that it you want to say about the Australian movement for uh, Peter Weir, sir? Yeah. No, I think I think we've got a long way to go. We're going to cover a lot more stuff. But uh, but yeah, this is a this is a really interesting time. I'm really glad the Criterion Collection. Thank you for your sponsorship, Criterion Channel. But um. I'm really glad they're highlighting this era in cinema because I think it's it's really fascinating. But beautiful, some beautiful works. Gallipoli is also streaming on Amazon Prime. I don't think we brought that up, but definitely check that one out. If if any of the rest of them seem a little too heady for you, I do think Gallipoli is is his most user friendly film of of that era, and it's just it's a really beautiful work. And and if you do enjoy kind of big epic period pieces war films i think it's one of the best executed 
of the like anti-war war films that's been done yeah and that you said it's long criterion but i think picnic and hanging rock and the last wave are both on hbo max as well for those that have that so all these are streaming somewhere at least for this episode so go and watch them if you can um mm-hmm. yeah we're in for a big month hopefully you stick with us and 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 want to learn more about Peter Weir, um, and maybe we'll do more directors as well. I'm I'm totally down with other doing other directors that we can talk about that aren't as discussed. So yeah, I think that's all we have for you on this episode. Make sure you subscribe to the Nation Podcast and Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't already, make sure you write us a review on whatever platform you listen on. Yeah, guys, like we've said, write us a good review, write us a bad review. Just uh, any activity we get kind of boosts our visibility. So let us know what you want changed. Hey, if you like the idea of a director episode, shoot us a line. Someone you think we could make a month out of. Someone we could we could sink our teeth into. Let's do it. I know people are dying for Thomas to do a whole Brian De Palma month. That's what I'm <laughs> wanting to That's see. We have a lot of movies to watch <laughs> if we do a whole Brian De Palma month. We'll, we'll do something. It'll be great. Um, if you haven't already, make sure you like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, again, next week we're going to be talking about You're Living Dangerously, Mosquito Coast, or Witness and Mosquito Coast. That's our next one. Also, I wanted to say this it dates the podcast, but last week we did Preston Sturgis, and apparently we released it the day Lady Eve came out 80 years ago. Weird tidbit. Now we got to look at all the it release dates for all of Peter Weir's films and see if we. <laughs> all of our movies. See if we, March, is, March, is a weird, March is a weird time to release a movie, though. So. But yeah, Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Yeah, man. Thanks for, thanks for doing Peter Weir month. <laughs> But yeah, we hope you guys continue to listen this month. Thanks. Bye.